Good morning. After Amy's comment, I guess I'm on the clock this morning. I promised to reduce that two-hour sermon I'd planned. In case we have not met, my name is Kelly Scott. I'm interim pastor for discipleship here at Trinity, and I'm a local mission partner of Trinity as director of a ministry called Athletes in Action at the University of Virginia. I just want to add my welcome to any of you who may just be arriving uh, in Charlottesville at that time of year. Or if you're new to Trinity, I would love to meet you. I'd love to meet you uh, in the foyer after the service. Today we come to the end of a five-week series entitled The Gospel According to the Psalms, The Good News According to the Psalms. Throughout July, Pastor Jesse has helped us to see the ways in which the songs and poems known as the Psalms point to and find their ultimate fulfillment in the person and work of Jesus. And our psalm this morning is a particularly appropriate psalm to conclude our series for a number of reasons. For one, Jesse mentioned that the psalms are the most quoted book in the New Testament. But out of all the psalms, do you know which psalm is quoted the most? It's Psalm 110. We also regularly recite a line in the Apostles' Creed based on this psalm when we profess that even now, Jesus is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. And perhaps most importantly, with an amazing economy of words and images, Psalm 110 pulls together the whole of Scripture, from Genesis to Samuel and Kings to the Gospels to Revelation and everything in between. This psalm reveals the unity of the Scriptures to us. Martin Luther says about it, this beautiful psalm is the very core and quintessence of the whole scripture. No other psalm prophesies as abundantly and completely about Christ. It portrays the Lord and his entire kingdom and is full of comfort for Christians. And you should know that that Luther preached eight sermons on this psalm over a two-month period. Eight sermons, seven verses. And so feel free to offer up a, a silent prayer of thanksgiving that I only brought one sermon this morning. If you're relatively new uh, to the scriptures, on the one hand, I do want to warn you that that our psalm this morning, it's not as straightforward as many other psalms. Uh, There are images and references that, that need to be explained. On the other hand, the fact that this psalm does pull together the whole of scripture means that it's a good week to begin to see how the Bible is not as commonly perceived a a jumble of isolated stories and events, but rather is a divinely inspired body of literature through which God is telling one true story about ourselves, about the world, and ultimately about him from beginning to end. And so please, well, normally I would tell you to open your Bible uh, or follow along in your order of worship. And if you have the ESV, um, you'll be able to follow along. Uh, The NIV was accidentally printed in the bulletin, so we're going to have the ESV, I believe, up here for you. And I want you to know as well uh, that when the Lord, the word Lord is written in all caps, that's not, that, that's intentional. It, it's not a typo. It, it actually is the translation of the personal name for God the Father, Yahweh, or I am, which God revealed to Moses. So Psalm 110, a psalm of David. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. 
From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And the Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment on, among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. And this is the word of the Lord. If you're the kind of person who has scripture hanging on your walls at home or maybe next to your kitchen sink, I would venture to guess that Psalm 110 is not there. You may have Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, or Psalm 8, O Lord, O Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. What is man that you are mindful of him? Or Psalm 16, the boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. He will shatter chiefs on, over the wide earth, just doesn't tug at the heartstrings. In the same way, if you want to scare your dinner guests off a little early, uh, you, you could start putting this in your house. And yet Psalm 110 is all over the New Testament. Jesus himself quotes the, the first verse of the psalm to humble and stump insincere religious leaders after they have spent an afternoon failing to stump him with questions, like, or with questions about paying taxes to, to Caesar or marriage at the resurrection of the dead. And of course, Jesus answers all of their questions brilliantly, and then it's Jesus' turn to ask a question. And Jesus asked the Pharisees, what do you think about the Messiah? Whose son is he? And they say, well, everyone knows. Of course, he's, from, he's King David's son. He'll come from the line of David. And Jesus says to them, well, how is it then that David, speaking by the Holy Spirit, said, in quotes verse 1, the Lord Yahweh, or God the Father, said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. You see, Jesus is pointing out to them that, that David's referring to someone else, aside from God the Father, as his Lord. And this Lord is, is a messianic figure who will reign at the right hand of the Father, essentially equal to God the Father. And so Jesus asked him, if, if David calls the Messiah Lord here, how could he also be David's son? And we're told that they walked away and never tried to stump Jesus again. <laughs> Only Jesus is David's son and David's Lord, both human and divine. Well, not only does Jesus turn the tables on the leaders here, he also answers some really important questions for us about the, the nature of, of Psalm 110. You see, what we find in most psalms is that they speak of the psalmist's immediate situation. Even psalms that speak of the suffering or righteousness or glory of Israel's king usually refer first to David's limited suffering or righteousness or glory. And so they are partially fulfilled in the life of David, even if it's quite clear that they're only ultimately fulfilled in a greater king to come. But Psalm 110 is different. Here, David is, is not speaking first of his own kingship. He does not even begin to fulfill this psalm. But he knows that God has promised him an eternal kingship. 2 Samuel 7, Psalm 89. And through the leading of God's spirit, he is now looking directly ahead to a greater king. 
Bruce Walkie has an excellent commentary on the Psalms, and he quotes ancient Near Eastern scholar Delitz, who says, David seizes the pillars of the divine promise. He lets go the ground of his own present and looks as a prophet into the future of his seed. And so unlike other Psalms, this Psalm speaks of only one king. And yet, even, even if this Psalm does not speak of David's immediate situation, it certainly speaks into David's immediate situation, as well as into our immediate situation. And that is what I hope we will see this morning. Psalm 110 produces in us a confident hope that Jesus will conquer evil, commission his church, and clothe his people. Conquer, commission, and clothe. Tricky psalm, but three simple alliterated points. So first, Jesus will conquer evil. Clearly, right, this this psalm is loaded with thick images of of an exalted, conquering king. The the first half of the psalm emphasizes the king's current rule from heaven as he rules in the midst of his enemies, while the second half of the psalm places a little bit more emphasis on Jesus' final victory. But before we scan the images of this conquering king, I think it's important to to first ask the question, who, who are the enemies of God according to Scripture? I mean, many people inside and and outside of the church today struggle with this idea of a Jesus who who conquers enemies. And perhaps this is you, and and I totally get it. Some of the language in, in Psalm 110 can be really hard to hear, especially without some context. But I actually want you to think Voldemort and Sauron and the White Witch here. When you read Harry Potter or Lord of the Rings or Narnia, you probably aren't thinking about those guys. Yeah, I sure hope they're okay in the end. I, I, I hope things work out well for Voldemort in the end, right? No, we, we want them to be brought down because we know that they stand against all that is good. And the books are actually written to evoke this response in us, this, this disdain for evil. In the same way, we have to remember that God's enemies are never arbitrary. According to Scripture, his enemies are those who choose to be his enemies and who participate in evil, who reject his love and his rule and his glory, who try to run away with his gifts, whether it's relationships or work or beauty or knowledge or power or sexuality or possessions, run away with them and worship the gifts rather than seeing the goodness of God and loving others through the gifts. And when we do that, we twist and distort and corrupt and destroy his good creation as we confess each week. This exchange of God's glory for self-rule is the root of evil. And we've all made this exchange, and we'll get to that. But for now, I just want to ask, what evils in the world are you ready to see come to an end? The war in Ukraine? The oppression of the Uyghurs and the Rohingya peoples? The intense persecution of Christians in many countries? Governments overrun with corruption? The opioid epidemic? How about unfaithfulness and betrayal? Neglect? The taking of unborn lives? Abuse, racism, greed. What about the twisted worship of bodies and sexuality and relationships, pornography and sex trafficking, 
the canceling of close friends, shouting matches, gossip, slander. And what about the other miseries, as Jesse spoke about last week, that that may not directly flow from our sin, but are nevertheless the result of living in a very fallen world, a world fallen away from God? Pandemics, poverty, cancer, dementia, death. If anyone does not hate the evils of the world and consider them our enemies, something is wrong. Psalm 45 tells us that the ultimate king of Israel, who was Jesus, loves righteousness and hates wickedness because it's impossible to love what is good without hating that which destroys the good. This is why it is good news that Jesus will conquer his enemies. The kings and nations who are the enemies in our psalm are emblematic of the city of man that glories in its rebellion against God and persists in evil. And so for those who have eyes to see what is good and true and beautiful and long to be done with evil, Psalm 110 speaks words of great comfort. Last week, Psalm 91 placed more emphasis on on God's protection and presence in the midst of, of ongoing suffering. Psalm 110 gives us hope and assurance now that both evil and suffering will not be ongoing forever. And so let these words of hope in Psalm 110 sink in. The image in verse 1 of enemies made a footstool depicts this complete and utter victory over evil. Final rest from battle. In verses 5 and 6, Jesus does not stumble across the finish line in his victory, but on the day of wrath will shatter kings and chiefs and execute judgment among the nations with the authority of God himself who wields the mighty scepter of verse 2. The victory, friends, is decisive. Pointing ahead, this is the true and faithful warrior of Revelation 19 who is in vision riding a white horse, judging and raging war with justice, striking down evil nations with the sword of his mouth and treading the winepress of the fury of God's wrath, which is his hatred of evil. The Apostle Paul puts it a little bit more matter-of-factly in 1 Corinthians 15. Then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he's destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. For he must reign until when? He quotes Psalm 1, until he's put his enemy, or Psalm 110, until he's put his enemies under his feet. And Paul says the last enemy to be destroyed is death itself. This is why Luther says that Psalm 110 is full of comfort for Christians. Do you feel the world is broken? Do you groan for the new creation? Psalm 110 promises that Jesus will indeed usher it in. And listen, I I realize that that it's difficult for all of us to, to imagine this, this final victory over evil in a world where, where we only know partial victory and we know many defeats. To paraphrase, to paraphrase Samwise Gamgee, can all of this really come untrue? But friends, the gospel 
is not the gospel if there is no final victory. The good news is not the good news if there is no final victory. If Jesus does not shatter all evil to usher in a new creation. And so the answer to our question, can all of this really come untrue? is that Christ disarmed the powers of evil on the cross, is risen from the grave and ascended to the right hand of the Father. He has already broken the power of the last enemy, which is death. Jesus conquers evil. But notice that the conquering king is not alone. Verse 3, Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power, In holy garments, from the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. Given the context of warfare, the NIV, as you can see in your bulletin, translates the first part, your troops will be willing on your day of battle. In either translation, the the image is one of of a master and a lord who has won the hearts of his people, who are not begrudging in their service, but give themselves freely and willingly to him. Jesus commissions his church to willing, joyful service. Just a couple of months ago, uh, my son, Caleb, who was already kind of thinking about ROTC or an academy for college, attended, he attended a commissioning ceremony for a friend uh, of his older brother. And please uh, do not think that I'm in any way conflating or merit- marrying the, mer- the military in Christ's church uh, in any way here. Uh, I'm just rolling with the battle imagery of the song, Okay. But, but Caleb, Caleb attended this commissioning ceremony, and a good commissioning service reminds you why you're doing what you're doing, who you are serving, and the gravity of the task ahead. Well, apparently this was a good one. Uh, I didn't actually go to it, but I saw Caleb right afterward, and, and there was this gleam in his eye. I was like, what happened to you? And he, he was so inspired by the graduating officers and those who had gone before him that we literally had to physically restrain him from going down to the local recruiting office and signing on the dotted line that day. As you can imagine, it wasn't quite like that. But, but he, let's just say that Caleb felt commissioned, even though he wasn't the one being commissioned. When we know the one who's gone before us, His suffering through intense conflict with evil in order to give us life. His love for what is right and good and his power to conquer evil. It moves us and frees us to willingly offer ourselves in his service. The 2016 film Hacksaw Ridge tells the mostly true story of Desmond Doss, an army combat medic from right here in Lynchburg, right down the road in Lynchburg, Virginia. Doss had every opportunity to defer service in World War II, but willingly enlisted to serve in spite of his refusal to bear arms and to work on the Sabbath. And again, please don't think I'm making any statement about pacifism or just war theory. Don't get any funny ideas. But Doss endured merciless persecution from his father, from his fellow soldiers, and from the officers above him for his faith. He was getting it from all sides. In spite of this, he continued to love them, literally refreshing the feet of the soldiers by treating their blisters, slowly winning them over as their feet healed. And near the end of the war, as his unit sought to win Hacksaw Ridge in order to take Okinawa, at one point, American soldiers are ambushed after ascending to the top of this strategic ridge. And most were killed, and hundreds 
were left for dead at the top. But Desmond Doss climbs up, goes back alone into the danger zone, bullets flying in the middle of the night. And if you've seen it before, you have these images in your head. But throughout the night, he finds the living wounded. He cares for them. And he lowers them back down the ridge to safety. Hour after hour after hour. At least 75 men are saved, including some enemy soldiers. It's a beautiful picture of, of offering oneself willingly, in his case, in response to Jesus. And I think that Doss's example is particularly appropriate for us as we consider what it looks like to serve Jesus at the present time as he rules from heaven, because the assurance of Jesus' final victory actually calls us to an unexpected or paradoxical response to our enemies or to those who, who may not appreciate our faith in Christ. Listen to, listen to St. Augustine's reflections on the barbarian invasions written just three years after the sack of Rome. The sack of Rome's very fresh in his mind. And in the city of God, he writes, the church must bear in mind that among these very enemies are hidden her future citizens. And when confronted with them, she must not think it a fruitless task to bear with their hostility until she finds them confessing the faith. You see, what Augustine seem to understand at a deep experiential level as society unraveled around him is that the certainty of Jesus' return to conquer evil actually leads us to the realization that we need not take vengeance into our own hands. On the contrary, God says, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. And in this age in which there is still time for God's enemies to become citizens of his kingdom, and in which Jesus is winning hearts from every tribe and tongue and nation, the weapons of God are the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God that pierces hearts and minds with his truth and love and the forks and knives of hospitality. Just as Christ loved us and gave up his life for us when we were still his enemies, we are commissioned to willingly bear hostility of those around us in order to share the love of Christ. The second half of verse 3 presents a, a beautiful, if slightly enigmatic picture of the Lord Jesus' willing servants when it says, from the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. Birthed out of the painful womb of the cross, from the darkness of the womb to the brightness, to the bright morning of Resurrection Sunday, we are together with Christ's church throughout the world, the ubiquitous dew that refreshes a thirsty world and whose youth is continually renewed by our untiring king. Unlike his enemies whose heads hang low, in verse 7, the king lifts up his head as he refreshes himself by the brook along the path to victory. Trinity, I believe that, that this understanding of being commissioned by Christ for joyful, willing service is a timely message for us. If there were ever a time when, when Trinity needed willing troops, people who freely offer themselves, who, who welcome people in, who, who, who go out these doors to embody and to speak the love of Christ in our neighborhoods and workplaces and other social circles, it's now. I've been so encouraged to see this happening uh, even this, this summer with ministry opportunities like Vacation Bible School and, and stepping up for the incoming fellows and 
people revamping the women's ministry and giving many hours to pastoral search, just to name a few. It's happening. No one is called, though, to do it all. No one is called to do it all. But over the next few weeks, as we consider the different aspects of the life of our church, and we consider opportunities to serve, may we do so with a deep sense of being commissioned by Jesus for joyful service. So there's, there's one little phrase, very important phrase in verse 3 that we kind of skipped over. And that leads us to our third and final C. Jesus clothes his people. In verse 3, we're told that, that King Jesus' willing servants are arrayed in holy garments. I believe the NIV says holy splendor. You can't skip over that. His willing servants are, are holy set apart, pure, righteous, resplendent. If you felt some tension as we spoke about those commissioned for willing service, because you're thinking, why, why me? Why should I be included among them and not among his enemies? If you felt that, your, your instincts were right. We have all made the exchange that I spoke of earlier. The exchange of God's good and glorious rule in our lives for our own self-rule. Trying to run away with the gifts of God for our own purposes, and it's led every single one of us into various forms of evil. How could we be found worthy of his commissioning? Of wearing a uniform of holy garments, holy splendor? Is there some sort of spiritual boot camp that could make us worthy? Is there some sort of special ceremony that that, that could make us worthy? No. The answer is in verse 4, where we read that this triumphant Lord and King is also a priest. Priests in the Bible were were designated to make sacrifices and offerings on behalf of the people as as a temporary covering for their sin. The offer would often place his hand on the head of the animal as a sign of the guilt being transferred from the sinner to the sacrificial animal. And the priest came from what is known as the tribe of Levi. Out of Abraham's 12 great-grandsons, which became the 12 tribes of Israel, God set apart this, this tribe of Levi to be the priestly tribe. But as the New Testament book of Hebrews explains, the, the sacrifices that the Levites offered had to keep being offered again and again and again because they were only temporary signs. The death of, of bulls and goats and lambs are not actually sufficient sacrifices to, to cover the sins of humanity. And the priests themselves were temporary. They had to offer sacrifices for themselves before they offered for the people, and eventually they died too. But verse 4 tells us that Jesus would not be like those priests. He is a priest forever. But wait, he's not of the order of Levi. He's not allowed to be a priest. That was taboo. In fact, he's from the kingly tribe of of Judah. Is there any precedent in the Bible of a non-Levite being a priest of the true God, not to mention a king and a priest? Well, way back in Genesis 14... Abraham, the father of Israel, he's been called by God to be a blessing to all nations, and he's just rescued his nephew Lot from a coalition of aggressive kings, and he recovers not only Lot's possessions, but he, he also 
brings back those of the defeated kings. And as Abraham returns from battle, this mysterious king of Salem, Salem, Jerusalem of all places, named Melchizedek, comes out to meet Abraham. He spreads out a table of bread and wine for Abraham. We're told that he is a priest of the Most High God. He blesses Abraham, and we're told that Abraham gives Melchizedek a tenth of the spoils, a tenth of everything. Abraham, the father of the Jews, tithes to this priest. Melchizedek comes out of nowhere. And the Old Testament narrative never mentions Melchizedek again. At least figuratively, Melchizedek has no beginning or end, as the book of Hebrews tells us. And as the psalmist David, led by the Spirit, picks up on in our psalm, as the book of Hebrews argues, Melchizedek has to be greater than Levi. For Abraham tithed to Melchizedek when Levi was still, so to speak, inside of Abraham. Levi tithed through Abraham to Melchizedek. Melchizedek's name means king of Zedek, king of righteousness. He is also king of Salem, king of peace. Sound like another king you know of. He is both a king and a priest. And so tucked away... In Genesis 14, God gave us this very early sign pointing to a better forever priest. The priest we all need. He did not offer the blood of bulls and goats again and again, but offered up himself once for all, taking the full weight of our sin and guilt on himself and rising to conquer it, to cleanse us, and to make all who trust in him holy to the Lord. When we are united to him by faith, we are included in his death, we are included in his resurrection, and we are included in Jesus's righteousness. Jesus clothes his people in his righteousness, in holy garments. The first small group I ever led at UVA, a couple, just a couple centuries ago, uh, it consisted of several first-year students uh, who were mostly unfamiliar with Scripture. And in their second year, we were working through the book of Hebrews, uh, and we came to the chapters 5 through 7, which talk about Melchizedek. And they really got into it. This, this, this mysterious and beautiful picture of Jesus, our king uh, and priest, and, and how, Melchiz- how he's pointed to by the person of Melchizedek. And, and in fact, they, they got so much into it that one of them started adding Zedek to all of our names. So Kelly became Kelzedek, Noah became Nozedek, Ken, Kenzedek, Dave, Davezedek. We actually had four Davezedeks in the Bible study. And I knew we were nerding out a bit on the passage, uh, but I was not prepared for this level of nerdiness. And I'm thinking, you know, several of you guys weren't even Christians a year ago, and now you're walking around calling each other by an obscure Bible figure's name. But what I can't remember if I realized at the time was just how profoundly accurate this renaming process was. Because Jesus is our perfect high priest, Ken is now Ken, the righteous one. Noah is Noah, the righteous one, and so on. I'm not not suggesting we adopt this for our entire church unless we're looking for a dramatic attendance drop. But if you are united to Christ by faith, I do want you to put your name in there. You are clothed 
and holy garments in the righteousness of Christ and found in him alone to be worthy of commissioning to his service. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we worship you. You rule and reign from the right hand of the Father. We ask that through your Spirit, grant us a sure and certain hope in your victory that frees us to be your willing servants inside and outside of your church, loving one another and loving our neighbors. Thank you for clothing us in your righteousness at the cost of your life and continually remind us of who we are in you. Amen.